especially for anyone who's listening to, uh, if they resonate with something that an artist is saying, right. that to, that they can see that in real time and see how an artist is hopefully evolving and developing with their life, you know, their art in their life. Totally. Um, anyway, speaking of that, what's up? Hey, man, how are you? I'm really good. I'm good that you're sitting across from me because, I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm doing good. Doing well? I don't know. I'm doing well. Uh, it's really good to see you. It's been a while. It's great to see you. Yeah. I mean, I've seen you on Instagram. Sure. Yeah. Uh, let's do this. You introduce yourself and what you're doing these days, and then we'll get into it. Great. So, hi, I'm Alex Hare, H-A-R-E. Whenever I introduce myself, I always spell it out, because people, especially people at cafes, baristas and all, they always think it's Hare, H-A-I-R, even though people's last names are H-A-R-E. Anyway, Alex Hare, H-A-R-E. I'm a theater director, and I also am the associate artistic director of Corkscrew Theater Festival, which is a festival of new plays and musicals, uh, seeks to reduce barriers to entry for early career artists to have fully staged production opportunities. That's awesome. Okay. So this is Looking for Artists. To all of you listening, thank you. To you, Alex Hare, H-A-R-E, thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, Basically what we do is just like talk. We've been doing it. If we had pressed record like when you got here, that would have been sufficient. Right. But um, so... How long have you been directing theater, and when did your interest in theater come about? Sure. I first directed a one-act when I was 15 at summer camp, but I guess I've been directing. A lot of directors you know, have stories about playing with dolls or stuffed animals when they were five years old, and I, when I was younger, my brothers and I had a bunch of stuff stuffed animal platypi, because platypi were a big beanie baby, and then a pillow pal. And so oh, we yeah. had about 30 of different shapes and sizes and colors. So I would do Fiddler on the Roof with the platypi, or I would do some other musicals. So that was directing too, I suppose. But I don't know. I've been thinking about this recently. You know, for me, when I was 12 is when I first really became aware of theater as an industry and something I might go into. But it was a hobby and a sort of avocation from elementary school when I would be obsessed with assemblies, assemblies that were, you know, dare puppet shows or just little plays. And I remember one in particular where a man would come and do these one-man shows about composers. And I was seven, maybe, and he said, hello, I'm George Gershwin. And then for an hour, he talked about George Gershwin. And he said, oh, me and my brother Ira, we wrote Porky and Bess, yada, yada, yada. And at the end, he said, and then in 1937, I died. <laughs> and I was thrown and then he turned over a photo or a portrait of George Gershwin, and he looked really haunted and and sad, and, and it was in my dreams and my nightmares for a couple of weeks. And and I don't know, I felt a sense of betrayal, I suppose. This is me after the fact, obviously. Sure. And for whatever reason, perhaps I had found it persuasive. And so then the, the coda to this is the next year he came back and he said, hello, I'm Johann Sebastian Bach. And I'm sure at the time I thought, not this time, I, I, I'm on to you. So anyway, Told that was, once. yeah, right. That was, yeah. that's theater, I guess. That was like, oh, that's the power of theater. That's the power of theater. That's the power of, it's all, it also speaks to the power of, of what's on the page. Like so often in theater, we go back to what's in the script. And I think what's so powerful about the script of one's per, of one person's life, like their narrative, is that it can be something different than 
the reality of like the situation. Like he, George Gershwin, when you were hearing about him, was already dead. But in hearing his story, he was very much alive and was impacting you in a very like present, real, like immediate way. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, that's you know, and that's the, kind of the timelessness that theater can have and and give, um, which is kind of crazy too because it feels like I met you yesterday, but in fact it was like a few years ago now, um, which is a whole story in itself. But right. where are you from? I was born in Plano, Texas. And I didn't grow up there. I grew up in New Jersey, northern New Jersey. And then I've been in New York for 10 years. Northern New Jersey, and you've been in New York for 10... What brought you to New York? Uh, college. Where? I went to Columbia, and I was an American studies major there, and an English minor, and I also took a bunch of theater classes. Did you enjoy it? I did. I did. It's funny, because I'm working with students who are applying to college right now. I work for a foundation... And we sort of help them with their college readiness. And one student in particular is struggling to write his Why Columbia essay because he's seen how, I don't know, destructive Columbia has been in his neighborhood of East Harlem and, and Harlem proper. And I don't know, it, we had this conversation this morning and I was saying that I, I think that's all very real. But if you want to apply to the school, there is stuff that you're going to have to focus on, which is the, you know, the value of it. And I showed him this image that it was in the Columbia Spectator uh, maybe a month ago. Butler Library is the main library on campus. And etched onto the facade are all these names of dead white men who are the authors who we read uh, in literature humanities, Cicero and uh, Demosthenes and, uh, and all these guys. And it's been a real sticking point for people on campus for a long time. And for this fall semester, a group has hung a banner above that from the tall windows. And it's a list of women authors and women of color. And I showed it to him. And to him, it was very meaningful, I think. And I said, yeah, there are people on this campus who feel the way that you do about this school, but who are working to change not just the school, but the world. And I think, yeah, I think it, you know, maybe is going to reshape his essay anyway, or his attitude a little bit about it. I love that response, that story in general, as a response to the question, did you enjoy it? Because like, with any institution, with anything in this life, like, you can find imperfections, you can find things that um, you you don't want to reconcile with your with your reality and your life or that uh, are hard to reconcile, right? But, like, there's also good. It, it's kind of, like, all on a spectrum. Um, so here's the thing. One thing that I really appreciated about you as a director, as a fellow theater maker, mm -hmm. was your intentionality of just, like, stating who you are, what you do, and, like, being very clear about what you're interested in and what you're not interested in. And um, you've always had, in my memory of you as a director, mm -hmm. uh, you've always had a, a really great ability to let the, let the room kind of go where it's going to go, but still get the work done. And you allow people to not only express who they are as themselves, but also um, explore character. Um, even with like the pressure of time. Cause I remember we were preparing for this festival and we didn't have as much time as other productions I've done have had. 
and granted it was on a it was a different type of production it was on a different scale right. but um but your demeanor in the room was just very uh comfortable yet professional and direction directional like i felt like we were always going somewhere so Thank you. like at, at what point i mean yeah you're welcome so i, I mean the reason i brought that up is cuz you said at Columbia, you did you studied this, this, and this, and you also studied some theater, right? Um, so, wh- how how are you such a gr- great director <laughs> if you um, if you are clearly someone who has interests in other areas, mm-hmm. like enough to major in that? Right, right. Well, thank you. First of all, I think what you're talking about is something that I constantly struggle with, which is to make space for people in the room and to allow it to go where it goes, and also to feel that time pressure. And there have been processes where I felt like I really let it go too long. And then it showed up in the you know final product because I wasn't hmm. being a taskmaster enough. But, you know, everything I do is an exploration of something. And I, I'm always trying to balance process and product, but I'm very interested in process and what I am as a director in terms of the leader of a process. So yeah, in the next couple of projects I do, I'm certainly going to be thinking about continuing to balance that. But I think everything in my life has been theater. Yes, I have a bunch of interests, but uh, especially recently I've realized just how baked in it's been. And for me, I think hmm. it's a recognition that I'm lucky that I found this thing that I love so so early because I know so many people who didn't find that thing so right. early. Right, or they find it and burn out or find something else. Right. It's cool that you've kept it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I feel as I see other people in my life go on to do other things and find joy in other things, I'm still really energized by this. So I just have to sort of trust that, I suppose. Yeah. But when I was in college, you know, I did mostly musical theater and musicals are the brunt of what I do. Musicals and then music-based theater. I think that experimental theater was not something that I really saw or participated in until college. And then the Barnard Theater Department is uh, led by some cool people, and Sharon Fogarty in particular, who runs Mabu Minds, which is sort of a legendary experimental theater in New York. And I took a few classes with her, an acting the avant-garde class, and then a second directing lab sort of thing, and just got some vocabulary from her, uh, you know, physical theater, Grotowski, and uh, in particular, I still think about... What's theater Grotowski? Grotowski was a Polish theater maker, uh, sort of seminal book, Theater Towards a Poor Theater. And so it's just all these sort of physical exercises and ways to get you out of your head. And I think hmm. studying theater at Columbia can feel like it's a very intellectualized thing. And I think hmm. she started to give me tools to break out of that, I suppose. And so I guess what I was left with was a deep passion for musical theater, a real nerdery around that. And then also a real interest in just the tools of theater that are rearranged by experimental theater makers. And I have both of those impulses now, I guess. What were some uh, musicals that kind of were impressioned upon your core memories, if you will, as a, as a theater person? Yes. When I was 12, I listened to all the Sondheim musicals on cast recordings, and that was like a big entree into musical theater. But I also was really grabbed by Carolina Change when I was 13. It was on Broadway. I didn't see it, but I had the cast recording which is two hours long. It's the entire show. It's essentially sung through. And I think it captured my imagination because it's so ambitious as a musical. It's coming back to Broadway uh, in a revival in the oh, spring. Fun. But it's Tony Kushner's take on 
a woman who is based on the black maid he had growing up in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Uh, it's set in 1963-64. And you have this story of what's going on with her and her daughter. Uh, and then you have all the national stuff going on to JFK's assassination and the civil rights Whoa. movement. It just does so many things at once. And it's so funny. And then it has a moment of like real nightmarish terror and the ending of it is given over to the daughter and it's to me to my mind the most moving thing in musical theater and and the score is by Janine Tesori and it just uses so many different colors and oh. so I think it just really expanded my imagination for what a musical can be and maybe I'm always chasing that uh, in terms of the work that I'm trying to do perhaps yeah so what does that look like practically mm-hmm. my work yeah, or that having that as a motivation. You said that's what you want to do. So what does that look like in the room? In the room? I don't know. I think, you know, there's this thing I've been trying to work out for myself for the last few years, which is me as director, me as a person who grew up sort of introverted and has shed that in certain ways, but in other ways not. Someone who has discovered I have an imagination that I want to cultivate, but also a deep interest in what other people are bringing into the room. And so what does it look like to decenter the director or have a director be one of many collaborators? I don't think I can shirk my duties as the decider in a room if I'm directing something. I think that's something that I have had to learn over the last few years in really trying to distance myself from, from the decision-making process in certain ways. But I think I'm always exploring what it means to give authority to the actors in the room and to the designers in the room or to my assistant director or to my stage manager. And I don't know, I've had a process or two recently where I felt like if there were a lot of flaws on my end, the main virtue was getting a bunch of cool people into the room and hearing what they had to say. So I'm going to try to keep pursuing that. Yeah, I think that's key. I feel like there's a weird unspoken pressure that unless you're in the room where it's happening, like you're wasting your time, like you have to get the gig or you have to be in the room with the right people. But, but actually it's like, I'm, I'm looking at the people that are successful, the people that are setting the standard and setting the bar. It's like, no, they, they're there because they were continually finding themselves in the room where they were genuinely interested in the people, in what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Like it's being in the room where it happens, not where you think it's supposed to happen. Sure, yeah. Like just, that's what I, that's what I love about, about your direction is that it's clear that, again, like I think I said this, you follow your interests. Maybe I didn't, but, um, so yeah, I think it's interesting that at Columbia you, you would study something other than theater because I wish I had done that in my own experience. Mm. And sometimes I wish I had studied theater, I think. But no, oh, I am weird. grateful. I was an American studies major. I think I said that. Yeah. And American studies is so much about creating connections because it's an interdisciplinary department. And so sometimes I feel like I majored in nothing at all. But sometimes <laughs> I understand that I was making connections between film and theater and history and language and linguistics right. and criminal justice and all these things. Essentially, you know, if the class had America in the title, I could take it. And then I carved out a little niche focus in sort of pop culture studies in the 20th century. Again, that's the kind of thing that feels like, well, I didn't major in anything really, except like reading Twitter maybe. But um, hmm. but I think all the projects I do now 
our American Studies projects, like the Walt Whitman project that we worked on is an American Studies project, and everything, essentially everything, falls into that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that project was really fun. And it's like everything that in my mind, like if I were scrolling through backstage and I saw something about like, let's destructure masculinity, I would be like, this might not be for me. But there was something about it that just kind of hooked me. And then and then it was you, obviously, that like I, I trust people that I meet and that I connect with. But um I like that we could we brought at least in my memory of it, we brought like a real humor to it that seemed to like speak to something deeper. Like it's coming back to like humor unlocking the pain, if mm. you will. Mm-hmm. And um, what I what I personally love about theater and kind of miss because I don't pursue it as consistently and um, as focused as I did. But one thing that I do appreciate about it is that when you pursue it and when you're doing it, you find yourself like to be challenged in ways that you weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. It you know it's like, like it sounds kind of obvious, especially to people that you know, the thespians out there. But for the people that don't do theater, don't don't act. Like it's that's a, it's kind of a strange concept to like willingly subject yourself to something that is going to challenge your perceptions and your your judgment and your assumptions. Yeah, and I think each project I take on now, I, my aim is that it focuses on something that I have ignored about myself willingly or that mm. I just have no knowledge of really and figure out how to explore that in my life and in the thing that we're making. So with the Walt Whitman show, which I guess I'll just briefly describe, which is called Walt Walt Whitman Body Jolt. And it's something I'm still working on. Uh, We did a workshop production this summer in uh, the sort of downstairs workshop production series uh, at my festival, Corkscrew Festival. Uh, Walt Whitman Body Jolt is an audience participatory fitness class play led by Walt Whitman, inspired by his writings, his poetry, and also the self-help guide, Manly Health and Training which was lost to history and rediscovered by a grad student, Zachary Turpin, three years ago. And yeah, the show was an attempt to adapt that in some way uh, to find a physicalized life for it and to think about, I don't know, the way that we train as people, uh, the way that we train as communities to be Mm. better and the way that we improve as countries. And so for me, I, you know, hadn't been to a gym in a long time or a gym class, certainly, and I started to go to fitness classes, and they're just so strange. And I grew to like them, and it's become a habit now. And so now I do them. Unironically, it was for research at, at the time. <laughs> yeah. But I just think I wasn't. That's great, though. Yeah. It's That's great. Bar classes There's in particular theater, I'm into. Right? Changing, oh, yeah. your, changing your assumptions, your conce- misconceptions, yes. if you will. And now I can't go to the gym because I just need someone to be leading me in choreography. Some kind of choreography feels essential to my fitness practice. So I go to a lot of bar classes. Oh, yeah. Which are super fun. No, and, yeah, it's awesome. You know, I feel dainty. Uh, the micro little movements and such. Uh, but anyway, yeah, at the start of that process, I felt like I had been ignoring my body or ignoring how to connect to it in a way. And so I feel that I've made some headway in that, but I'm still exploring that and I'm still exploring the show. Yeah, I think it's essential um, as a theater maker of any kind to 
to like find the find the grind in not the work, not booking the shows, not booking the next, you know, theater or finding the next venue, but the grind of experience. Because I think it like as theater makers and storytellers, we need to have stories to tell. And um a part of my separation from the theater world has been to pursue that a little more dedicatedly. Yeah, I admire that. Um, yeah, thank you. But there's also something in, you know, taking root and finding something that you loved at 15 and then committing to that. So like how, where, where, how do you find the balance in, you know, staying in the real world and also staying in the theater world? Cause I do think that they're different worlds. Yes. It's a good question, and I was just watching Kristen Stewart and Shia LaBeouf. They're doing a, an actors oh, dude, on this, actors. Someone just sent me this link. Really, I haven't watched it yet. What, what's it about? They're such cuckoo birds, and I like both of them. <laughs> Kristen Stewart more than Shia LaBeouf, obviously. Sure, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. He's weird. Yeah, but they're talking, and you know, they both were child actors. They both grew up on film sets, mm-hmm. and they bond over just feeling like they had lived some of their best moments on set or Shia LaBeouf says that. And Kristen Stewart says that she understands why other people might think that that's sad, but she thinks it's beautiful. And then Shia LaBeouf is saying that he, I don't know, is bummed out by it and and wants to live more outside of it. So it's a moment Hmm. where they're really confronting the sadness and the beauty of living through art. And I think I feel both of those things. And so I don't know, like you, yeah, I'm trying to, cultivate these other parts of myself so that I can bring it back to theater. And, uh, yeah, I don't always do it well, I think, but, um, is there any part of you that wants to take what you learn and cultivate in theater and bring that out? That's kind of the pursuit of theater in and of itself, but I mean more, um, actively, you know, like outside of the theater. Yes. I think that I've made little steps towards that in certain ways. One way is that my, survival job is I'm a tutor and the way that I relate to students is I think the way that I relate to actors which is being patient and coaxing something out of them that they can own and giving guidance and that sort of thing I think both of those have informed each other I think I'm a better communicator in theater because of the work that I do in sessions with students Mm. and vice versa Mm. and then yeah there have been little moments like I worked on a sort of song cycle concert that paired formerly incarcerated memoirists with singer-songwriters from the theater world to write songs based on their experiences. And it was a concert event we did in Long Island and New York a few years ago as part of the Raise the Age campaign, which was a criminal justice campaign uh, trying to get the age of criminal responsibility raised uh, from 16 in New York State to 18. Mm. And I think there was something about leading the pairs in theater and then directing some people who were going to speak and tell their own stories who were not from the theater that felt a little bit like what you're talking about. I think I want to keep figuring out how are these skills that I have applicable skills to elsewhere, you know? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind of what spurred me into, um, this podcast because while it's, it, it is a performance in its own way, but it, in many in many senses it's not it's absolutely not like this is not I, I try to play um it's definitely a character a version of me but it's not 
like, it's not a character. Like, this is part of me. No, it feels like you. Good. This feels like you. And that's what I want. Great. And, and I, cause I think that this is kind of what Shia's speaking to, which is like real interactions. And I want to take that with people that make things mm-hmm. and then share that with everybody. Mm. Because I feel like whether you're a consumer of art or a maker of art, like there's something in these conversations that is valuable, you know, and we, so we need to like, at least I need to literally schedule it in my calendar (laughs) to make these conversations happen. I love it. Yeah. I love it too, because there's always a moment in every podcast where someone says something or I like look up and I see like a shadow on your face and it, like I see you in a different way. And I remember something like a moment that we've had, and then I'm. It reminds me that we're having a moment now. Like it's like every week, man. It's like, you know, it it kind of grounds me. Mm. So, um, I I like that, and and um, but but I see like this is kind of easy for me to to see how it like connects back into the world, you know, or like back into the theater world, but also the real world, you know, like people that have no reason to listen to this podcast are probably listening to this podcast. And that makes me happy Mm -hmm. because the thing that made me feel antsy was going to the theater in the city and pretty much seeing the same people. And I got, dude, I got on a train today and I could, I could literally like if I took a picture, I could highlight all the people that do theater because they're basically wearing the same things. And I'm not hating. I'm just saying like it's easy to get swept up in the insulated community that is New York theater, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so I appreciate your willingness to like come on here and talk about you and be you and just tell us like who you are, what's important to you. Totally. Well, and I think... Those sorts of questions are things that at Corkscrew we're thinking about a lot. Cool. We're, we're entering our fourth summer season. And actually, oh, it's a little plug, I guess. Uh, we're about to open 100%. our submissions for that season probably December 9th. I think that's when we're going to open. And then it'll be uh, over the holidays and into January a little bit uh, that you'll be able to submit. And we got lots of cool, fun things going on. We're going to move theaters. We've had a wonderful home at the Paradise Factory in the East Village. And at the same time, you know, we're growing and we are always pushing our artists to be ambitious in terms of their designs. And so I'm excited about our new home, which Mm. will be announced uh, with the submissions opening. And I don't know. I think we created the festival in reaction to some experiences that we had had in New York. We... Uh, Tom Capusta is the artistic director, yeah. uh, associate. I was about to ask, who's we? Yeah, yeah. So that's Tom, who you know, because Tom uh, yeah. directed you in a play. I love Tom. Yes, absolutely. And and then Alex Donnelly is the executive director. And it really was a conversation between the two of them. Uh, New York Fringe had announced that they were not going to be happening in the summer of 2017. This was sort of fall of 2016. And they said, maybe we'll try something. We had all had festival experiences that we had liked, but also inevitably there's a lack of support because there's such a wealth of projects that are getting space. And that's the real virtue of it, right? Like Fringe used to do 200 shows, and so 200 you know, artist teams were doing stuff. But you know, things fell through the cracks inevitably, 
And sometimes the financials are really challenging. I mean, making theater in New York is very, very financially challenging. And so yeah. there yeah. were a couple of things that we wanted to do to, like I said, reduce barriers to entry. So one of those is have a free uh, submissions process. And so there's no application fee. There's also no participation fee, which a lot of festivals rely on, um, you know, and then you get stuff out of it, you get you know, marketing and such. But so like in order to participate as a as a person who submits something to the festival, you have right. to pay certain festivals do that like yes. with most festivals. Yeah, I, I well, it depends on, on oh, certain. That's yes, interesting. Yes. That's yeah, really interesting. yeah, and it's part of producing costs. So I understand why sure. they do it. But for us, it's important to not have a participation fee. And then every year we're trying to expand the things that we offer. And to my mind, we're a theater that works like a company. You know, Tom and me and other people on the team, we provide a lot of support in the months leading up to the festival. Uh, Tom leads what's called a director-producer lab. So every two weeks he gathers the directors and producers of the four or five productions and sort of creates a space for them to talk about where they're at in terms of the process and guidance and starts to facilitate collaboration among all the people in the festival. Um, but we're thinking about those barriers and what are those barriers that prevent you know, people uh, you know, in all socioeconomic classes from making theater in the city you know, we're always trying to figure out what we can be doing more in terms of the things we offer, but also in our outreach uh, to make our festival, which is by definition very low to the ground, something that is open. Whoa. That's kind of uh, mind-melting, mind if you melting. will. Wow. It kind of is because it's, uh, it's, it doesn't sound like um, you guys value the same things as most, uh, not most, but a lot of like theater communities do. I think it's hard. And look, I'm not here to badmouth anybody else. I just think that we, and, we, and the only reason we can do this is because we are really small, right? We, we do sure. four or five shows a, sure. uh, a, a summer. We're going to be probably about five weeks uh, this next summer, and each production gets 10 performances mm. uh, each because the long runs are important because there's a lack of production opportunities too. Um, other little things I'll just mention is that we, uh, we work with casting directors to cast the shows and that's really valuable because I think early career artists rarely get to work with casting directors on a high level, uh, and, and press and marketing, some other things, but I don't know, I, I'm trying to figure out what this model is. It's sort of in between a festival and a theater company right now. Right. That's what it sounds like. And I don't, we don't do one type of show. We're very open in terms of the type of work that we do, which I think makes it a little hard to pin down, oh, that's a corkscrew show, at least right now, you know, just being frank, because we've yeah. done three summers so far. Yeah. But I think for us, corkscrew is a process, you know, first and foremost, rather than like a, a subject. Yeah, 100%. I mean, in many ways, it sounds similar to uh, Rock Rising's situation. Uh, we're a pretty small team and we are really focused on community and connecting communities that are around us. But yeah, going back to the bad mouthing, it's more of like, I'm not trying to bad mouth anyone because I think that there's value and there can be value in positive things found in pretty much any space. Mm -hmm. But, but, it's like the secrets that an actor would use to prepare. It's just, it sounds like your secrets are different, you know, just different. Mm -hmm. Not not inherently better or worse, just different. Like you don't really hear of like people throwing theater festivals and trying to think of like how to make it more approachable to, to like everybody of any socioeconomic 
class. Like mm. that's not something I hear very much. And you know, you know, you see the same people in the same seats, more or less. Right. Right. And that's why, like, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now about Broadway shows and what Broadway shows can do to make their audiences not look the way that they look. What can they? What do you think they can do? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think. <laughs> You know, Jeremy O'Harris is trying a bunch of things with Slave Play to get black people into the theater, which was Black Theater Night, and also, you know, just making sure that there are $40 tickets, and I think, you know, there's Hmm. certain economic things to do there. I think it's challenging because Broadway is so expensive at this point. You know, shows, especially musicals, are over $15 million and that sort of thing. So while I think there's a lot that Broadway ought to be doing about it and are doing, for us, you know, we're trying to fill, uh, used to be a 60-seat theater, now it may be sort of a 100-seat theater, is not much of an excuse for audiences to be, you know, really monochrome, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Also, like, there's no, ex- there's almost no excuse for that, just being in this city. Yeah, perhaps you're right. Yeah, Perhaps especially when it comes to friend groups. Like I've been trying to think about like my friends and the friends that I've made since coming here. Cause that's my community mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Like is my community like, do, am I, am I just creating a bubble for myself? You know? Um, I don't know. So wait, what's Walt, where is Walt Whitman right now in terms of process? Like sure. how many productions have you done since the one we did? And then like, are, What's on the horizon? Yeah, well, we did a 15-minute version. That was the very first version. And you were a character named Jesse, who Mm -hmm. was Walt Whitman's co-instructor. And as we had it, you know, Walt Whitman is, you know, he's a lounger and he's one with the earth. And at the same time, he's got this real drive uh, to make people fit into a sort of narrow idea, perhaps, of what masculinity is. And then Jesse is really attentive to difference in the room and trying to make sure that it's an accessible space and what that means for a fitness room, accessible in terms of ability, disability, and, and stamina and age and that sort of thing. And that dynamic is still present in the show, although Jesse is now Devin. I changed the name because the character just sort of changed and felt like it needed a new name. Cool. We did a week... Um, in Maine, up at the Barn Arts Collective, which is a really cool space that was last summer. And then we did, yeah, what I call a workshop production this past summer. And that was really the first time we did a fully staged thing and it's audience participatory. So that was the first time we really had the audience moving the entire time. How did it go? Oh, fun, you know, sometimes. Were people sweating? Um, I think so, yeah. My whole family came to one performance and it was a really small space. uh, And so... I don't know. My my mother was like really raring to go because she said, oh, I, I've been exercising. And I was like, great. Yeah, I'm sure I'll be great <laughs> at it. And then she started to go towards the front. And I almost said, oh, maybe don't be in the front because sometimes it's really hard to follow. And then I thought, well, that's condescending. I'm just going to let my mother can stand yeah. in the front. Yeah. And then it was very hard at the beginning. And she <laughs> said she thought she was going to die in the first five minutes. But it got easier. It got easier. So I don't know. We learned oh, a lot. Oh, she felt a pressure to keep going because she was in the front? I think that's true, of course, yeah, inevitably. sure. sure. I mean, we learned a lot about what you can listen to while you're moving and the self-consciousness that you have when you're moving and what modifications need to be shown and that sort of thing. But I don't know. Uh, How much of that was real time with Devin? I think, um, yeah. Because I remember I mean, if, if any modifications were suggested, it was from him yes, or so them. I don't know 
how in this, drastically the characters change. Yeah, no, in this production, uh, I was played by a wonderful actor named Hasia Muhammad, and uh, the character used he, him pronouns, I think. Cool. He never released it. Well, they used it, of course. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he did modifications. I think that's one thing that we would want to push further in, in a future iteration. I actually, yeah, I just really want to see what does a democratic fitness room look like? What does a Walt Whitman egalitarian fitness room look like? And how can it look different from dance classes that we go to? So this was... You know, it was dance and it was boxing and it was a little yoga and it was Zumba and it was a couple other things, sort of a grab bag. But I think moving forward, I want to really hone in on what the body jolt method thing is, especially going to all these branded, uh, you know, fitness places like Pure Bar where it's got, you know, the ball that you put between your thighs and you squeeze and the, and the bands and just the props, right? So many of these places have like their props and their logo and that sort of thing. And so what body jolt is, I think I'm still discovering. And uh, yeah, cool. I don't know. I'm, I'm debriefing a lot with myself and, and people and uh, yeah, hope to keep working on it because I, I know that there's still a lot more I want to do on it. It sounds, and this could be getting a little conspiratorial, but it sounds like an unending well of content and culture because you could actually, like, it could actually inspire a whole, like, really niche, niche, uh, like, theater fitness Uh category. Yeah, I sometimes say that the audience is this intersection of fitness people who might go for the gimmick and then theater people who, like I used to be, uh, don't ever exercise their bodies at all, but who might go because there's a little theater involved. Yeah, that's awesome. No, it's really cool. Like sleep no more, but fitness. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yep. Body jolt, sleep no more, but fitness. That's pretty good. I'll take it. Yeah, I mean, I think what I always struggle with everything I make because I'm always motivated seemingly right now by form first and thinking about what the form is and then letting everything else come after that. Just a fear that I'm all gimmicks, you know? And with this one, I think the gimmick came first. And then for me, there's a lot to it. There's, I don't know, intellectual and physical and, and democratic underpinnings. And, and to me, a lot it has become a lot about moral training and how we deal with sort of the ugliness that we bring into a room and, and yep. you know, metabolize it. And so I just want to make sure that it does all of these things that I it ask all these questions that I'm trying to ask myself within the format of, you know, an hour-long fitness class. So I think that's the the challenge. But I am continually nourished by it because I do think I still have all these things I'm trying to squeeze into it. Yeah, I mean, I was challenged by the choreography, the fitness, if you will, the mm. fitness choreography. Yes. Um, and I, at the time, I was in a very different place physically, but I was very much physically active. Yeah. And I was still challenged, not just memorizing and knowing what was coming next, but the actual stringing together the movements was challenging, not awkward, but just genuinely mm-hmm. not easy. Yes, yes. And you have gone on to do all of these interesting physical fitness things. Where are you right now in terms of your journey? You know what? I don't want to be cheesy or just try to make this connection because this podcast is happening, but you know... The play that we did, Walt Whitman, Body Jolt, it actually did, like, like you know, it got me thinking in mm. terms of, like, like movement. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, because it had been a while since I was, since I was charged with the responsibility of following such tight and intricate choreography. Uh-huh. For, like, it, it had been, like, maybe three years, four years, and, like, that's not necessarily like riding a bike. 
Um, uh, and, and also like, you know, you had to perform, there were lines, you had time, you know, you had to not only have the timing of the choreography, right, but the timing of the play and the story. Mm. Um, and so I started thinking like, maybe I'm not as in tune with my body as I thought. Hmm. Maybe it's a lot more, um, contextual than, than I'm aware, currently aware of. Like maybe my functionality is only like, like, you know, I'm, I'm good at yoga. I'm good at longboarding or I'm good at certain weightlifting exercises, but I'm not necessarily like my body doesn't necessarily function as one unit. Like those things felt very separated to me Mm. and with everything else in my life, I don't like when things feel like they're islands kind of floating, um, apart from each other. I like to find like bridges or canals or something that will connect them all. So I started studying after about half a year of like internal debate and waffling. I started Brazilian Uh jiu-jitsu. Shout out to my brother-in-law who started, because I suggested it, started before me and then got me into it. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was very nice and that it's very fitting because like the whole concept of jujitsu is that a weaker, smaller person can win the fight if they have the technique. Uh-huh. That's a little burn roasted, roasted my brother-in-law <laughs> because he is smaller than me and definitely weaker. But right now he's been going longer than me, so who's to say? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? He says in videos to be nice, like we're pr- probably pretty much at the same skill level, and he's saying that to be nice. <laughs> he's definitely a little more advanced than I am. And it shows because we've we've like rolled together. They mm-hmm. call it rolling. Mm-hmm. But since doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, dude, I feel like I've been walking for the first time. Wow. Like I'm relearning how to walk and I'm feeling like I'm connected to the ground. And the only thing I can compare it to is another Japanese physical uh, movement that I've studied, which is a form of physical movement, which is... Um, Suzuki, mm-hmm. the Suzuki right. method. Yep. Yeah, I did a workshop uh, that was about a month long, I think, maybe like two and a half, three weeks, maybe just shy of a month, but it was fantastic. And and this, there's something about the Japanese that just they understand the connections. Uh-huh. And um, so I've been trying to find those connections in my own life. Like what are the things that like the world keeps telling me that I may not be listening to or maybe book bookmarking for a later day and just like, nah, dude, look, are you a water sign? Doesn't matter if you think like understand horoscopes or believe in them. Let's just say you're a water sign. Okay. You longboard. Why not surf? Learn how to surf. Come to find out surfing and Brazilian jujitsu. There are so many people that cross train with both of those things. They're like so closely related and uh you know surfing and longboarding now i can use those to cross train with each other mm-hmm. and now my weightlifting is just to serve those things and to keep me safe and to keep like all of it sustained that's cool it's very cool and i feel a purpose and i can't even necessarily tell you what it is but before i had all these hobbies and now it's like i have i have a routine mhm 
I know. I really crave hobbies. I don't have that many at the moment, but I, as a child, you know, I drew and I painted. I took lessons. I also took singing lessons and I played viola and I played piano and all these things that, you know, you find you don't have time for or what have you. But yeah, I would really like to pick up a couple. I know some people who like they do stuff with wood. I'd be interested. I am not handy at all, but I would like to cultivate that part of myself. The thing that I've learned with Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I'm like, I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying what it is. Like I'm almost a blue belt. So I essentially know nothing, but I've learned so much. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've learned is that it's just putting the time in and learning and you will get better. Like you could do stuff with wood. You just have to do it. You know what I mean? Like it's, and it's, that's, that's like easier said than done always, but you do harder stuff in the theater. Harder. You find more, You it's harder to find the time that you put into the stuff that you do, That's too. That's probably true, I guess. I mean, certainly, yes, all the theater stuff I do is around the money-making things I have to do. And because I care about it, yeah, I find the time for it. And Corkscrew, yeah, Corkscrew has been you know, a side thing for all of us for the last three years. And I think we're trying to figure out, yeah, in year five, year six, when is it that this becomes the full-time thing for maybe at least, or first, Tom as the artistic director and and some of us, um, you know, that would be that would be nice. But for now, the New York Hustle is always, you know, doing a bunch of things at the same time. I love that you said the New York Hustle because um, when we had first met for, well, I mean, not when, when, when we had first worked together for Walt Whitman, I had also just started a vlog, which I was... Yes, you, I You also made an impression upon me because... You said, um, how's the vlog going? Or you referenced the vlog like right when I had started it uh-huh, and uh-huh. right, you know, we had only met once in person right. at that point. So it was really like impressive that you would ask me about it. Oh yeah, I was excited by it. Yeah, man. And I was excited by your excitement and still am. And like whenever I I'm currently collecting footage and content for more material, hopefully, uh, because of excitement like that. Mm-hmm. But um but yeah, I just wait. Where was I going with that? What was I gonna say? Uh, the vlog. What were we talking about right before that? We were talking about the vlog and the New York hustle. The New York hustle. I had this thing in my vlog about um, side hustles and side hustles being my thing to support my main hustle of like acting or whatever it was at the time. I think it was just acting or theater. And th- I think through the process of the vlog, like collecting all these moments week to week and then crafting a narrative out of it. I was like, no, these these are not my side hustles. In the time that I put into it, the emotional investment, like like this is my life. These are my this is the hustle. These are my hustles. Right. And they're all connected and they're all codependent and like n- one may interest me more, but no one hustle is more important than the other. So I, I kind of challenged myself to stop saying side hustles. And I, so I like how you said the New York hustle. Uh-huh, uh-huh. This is the New York hustle, yes. you know? And it's like, I look at people that you see on the train and you may think like, you don't know, you don't know what it's like. Like I do all these things just to make something that you're probably never even going to see. <laughs> It's just easy to like look at people that are doing something that's not a cre- necessarily creative endeavor and just be like, 
oh, life must be so easy to just like clock in and clock out. Mm. Because I feel like there's there's this like thing that artists do here where we create this like narrative of us being stuck in the grind just to like be artists and stuff. And it's like, well, no, because these people are riding the train too. It's like everybody's here just kind of doing their hustle. Yeah, and I think, you know, there was a point earlier in my 20s where maybe I was like, oh, I'm not going to be a director until I do this full time, you know? And so everything I'm doing in my life is a preamble to that. Right. And then I just got to a place where, one, I was happy with all the things that I was doing, the tutoring and the directing and the running of the festival and doing a bunch of other little things where I just had to look at my life and say, this is my life, I'm an adult person, and Mm -hmm. all of these things are little puzzle pieces, and I'm, you know, for the time being, happy to keep trying to make them fit into a puzzle. I'm trying to continue the puzzle metaphor, but... uh, It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't even question it. Oh, good. Right, so I think that, you know, I, like in my LinkedIn profile, I say I'm a theater director and tutor. Now, that's one, because sometimes I get tutoring jobs that way, or people have contacted me that way, Uh, but also because, yeah, I think that they're both things that I do, I especially right now in the fall, it's heavy tutoring season. And then also, I'm not directing something right now, which can make one feel like they are not a director. And yet I am planting seeds and preparing for a lot of things that I'm developing. And so that's like a meeting with a writer or talking to a designer or, you know, developing something or a phone call with a prospective person. And so all that stuff is directing. It's just, you know, so much of it is not you in the rehearsal room leading somebody. That's at least for me right now, the thing that is the prize at the end of all the labor that it takes to get there. Right. Whoa. Whoa. That, I take it back, that is mind-melting. Hmm. Just for anyone who, whatever your, your trade or your craft is, like, don't get caught up in the cherry on top being your idea of what that pursuit actually mm-hmm. is. Because, mm-hmm. like... You know, Brazil, like for, for instance, with me in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, because that's the thing that I'm most focused on. Like, I've set goals for myself there that I'm currently trying to like fulfill. And I, I don't know. It's like, I don't know. I actually don't even know. Mm-hmm. You could make connections all day. I, I find I feel like I fall into a pitfall of just like constantly making connections, and so I right, right. I fear that all of my episodes are just like, and that's a thing about like surfing, man. And my listener, not my listeners, but the people who listen to this are just like, all right, bro, yeah. next. Yeah. Do you listen to podcasts? I consciously don't, but that's not to say I wouldn't enjoy a podcast. I've listened to this podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Podcasts are interesting to me. Yeah, I I like them. I if I'm cooking or washing dishes or something, I'll listen to that. I recently listened to Ronan Farrow's audiobook for Catch and mm. Kill, his book that just came out, which is like a ten hour audiobook. Yeah. Just because it feels so much about current events and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's an exciting storytelling thing. I I don't have ideas for podcasts. Like I know a lot of theater people are trying to make podcasts and I think, you know, it's an overwhelming thing for me to make theater. So I'm, you know, I don't know if I'm going to move genres right now, but it's, yeah, it's fun to think about. Um, I don't know. Catch and Kill is funny. I recommend people listening to the audiobook if they're going to experience it. It's a weird... Have you heard about the book much? I have, but just not not a lot at all. Yeah, just... I mean, it's about him reporting, you know, the story, the Weinstein story, but the thing that is new in the book, at least was new to me, was how much pressure he was under from NBC 
to sort of pause and stop his reporting and all that. So that's all really, really gripping and exciting. And then he does these voices, which this has become sort of popular on Twitter, that he does these voices, character voices for everybody who is quoted in the book. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's such a grave subject. And then the uh, voices can be so sort of silly. And so that takes you out of it. But at the same time, it's 10 hours of audio theater. And so you kind of do need the voices. I There were yeah. times where I really, even if he was doing something really ridiculous, I wasn't thinking about it as him. I was mm -hmm. sort of listening to the story mm -hmm. and then just little moments. So I think mostly well, yeah. effective, perhaps. It's it's weird as a, as a medium, like how time can kind of take you to another place, mm -hmm. even in the midst of like, like time can exceed time can break past, like break through the circumstance of like this dude's voice is kind of weird because after 20 minutes, you're actually not thinking about that at all. Right. You're, and I, I'm in a place right now where I'm editing like maybe four different podcasts. One of those podcasts is, is closer to a, just a straight up radio drama. And I'm just fascinated by how, where 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 your brain can take you when you're just listening like the imagery that can come up through just listening to things being read to you is crazy and it's different than if you were actively like reading a physical book yes i think about this because my main training or the thing that really got me into theater was listening to cast recordings of musicals oh, when i was right. a teenager interesting and i just think you know, one, that's good training for a director. It forces you to work on your imagination. Um, it has a sort of downside, which is like music to me is like the best thing in the world. Like nothing better than music. Like trees are good as well. Music and trees are maybe like the best things in the world possibly. And so when you're staging a musical, it's got to be as good as music, which is impossible, right? And so that's why when I listen to a cast recording, I don't actually do it anymore. I kind of grew out of it, I think. But when I was 12 to when I was 17 or 18, it's really all I did in terms of music. It just, yeah, the things that you imagine are so not bound by gravity and physics and all. It's all honestly closer to like animation, the things that you might imagine mm -hmm. when you're listening to a cast recording. And then it's only the most exciting alive thing in a room that can really measure up to that. So I think that's the thing that I'm always chasing, you know, and I think right. that's, you know, it's a high bar. It's a good bar to be chasing. It is a very good bar to be chasing because at the end of the day, and this is the last Brazilian jiu-jitsu metaphor okay. I'll make on this episode. <laughs> and I'll actually finish this one because I didn't. I There was a cliffhanger earlier, yeah, so I'll sure. finish this one. Um, I think that Brazilian jiu-jitsu has taught me like the ways in which I am not a very good listener hmm. and how I can think that I'm listening. But when you actually, like, because so much of the class is just like, them demonstrating them demonstrating a move, but then you also have to like. There are moments where you have to just kind of not watch them and and let the words hit your ear, and that's a learning style that I think is not, um, it's not really practiced that much, mm -hmm. and um, so yeah, I mean, part a, a lot of the reason that you're here is not only that we've worked together in the past and that you're currently working on theater, but I can see even through Instagram a weird the weird social media thing that we all use. Um, your, your listening, I think, is what um, stuck out to me the most. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, honestly. Um, is there anything else that you want to say? 
Anything else I want to say? I would love for you to come back on if you enjoyed yourself at all. I have, very much so. Um, parting words, is that what I'm being asked? Yeah, for? I mean, I was going to give you a question of the day if you're interested. Oh, okay, I'm bad at these, but yes. You might be good at this one. Okay. Because it's your wheelhouse. Sure. Okay. Um, top five musicals. Top five musicals. Top five musicals, me personally, or the best musicals? Like, you know Mount Rushmore? Uh-huh. Like, if you had to put, if you had to carve those musicals. Right. If you had to. I had to. Right. So that's very different. Like, a canon might be Gypsy and West Side Story sure. and those sorts of things. I got you. But if I had the choice, I'm going to make, like, the weird Mount Rushmore that Love it. only this certain people go to. This is the only thing I would want. Yes. Okay. Well, I think, I mean, I don't know. My favorite Sondheim is probably... Sunday in the Park with George. So I guess you'd put. Sunday did you see in the, park the one with, with Jake? I did. I yes. did too. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, I was moved mm -hmm. to tears. Yes, that's that'll do it. Uh, so that's number one. I'll put Carolina Change on there, and then oh, I don't know. I'll just say random ones uh, that I like very much. So Adding Machine, the musical, is a really strange, cool musical adapted from hmm. an expressionist play from the twenties called Adding Machine, and it's. Just uh, it's dark and twisted and, and, and haven't heard of it. Yeah, it was off Broadway maybe ten years ago and uh, should be better known. And then let's see, let's see. Oh, uh, there's one I don't want to say, but it's right at the top <laughs> of my head, so it's Legally Blonde, the musical, which is not. I think it's a good. I wouldn't really put it on Mount Rushmore, mm. but for whatever reason, my body was telling you me did to list say it, it. So there it is. You did list it. And then I need one more. <laughs> don't I need one more? Um, <laughs> Oh, gosh, I don't know. Uh, let's see, let's see. I'm, I'm fascinated already. Oh, good. Well, I think this is not a perfect musical, but it has the most moving... Oh, I already said Carolina Change has the most moving ending. Well, this one has another most moving ending in musical theater, and it's Floyd Collins by Adam Gettle, which is about a man who went down into these caves in Kentucky in the 20s. He was trying to be a caver and create a tourist attraction. He got stuck down there, 127-hour style. And then there was a whole circus, that a media circus that came about around this, his rescue effort. And ultimately, he died down there. And so the ending is him sort of reckoning with his life and seeing the face of God as he ascends Whoa. and dies. So that is just like, it smacks you in the face Wait, with its power. What? It's really beautiful. Yeah. What's it called? It's called Floyd Collins. And it's wow. due for a revival. It was off-Broadway in the mid-90s and has not been revived in New York since. But it is a favorite among directors. I feel I like know. I'm going to cry just having you, like, you having explained that. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it makes me cry. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's the music like? The music is, like, Aaron Copeland, kind of. It's, like, really oh, rich, beautiful Americana. I'd be done. It's sort I would of folk country. Done. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. Oh, man. Uh, that kind of strikes close to home, too, because I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Did you? And there's a very famous attraction there, Ruby Falls. Okay. And uh, Ruby Falls was discovered when there were people, like, you know, people, like, in the caves, like, tinkering around, and they were like, is that, like, do we hear water? And they just, like, you can see where they originally, like, tunneled through to, mm. like, as you're walking like a mile into the side of a mountain and you're just like, what? Who would do this in their right mind? Maybe that's a musical too. Yeah. It's a little too close though, you mm -hmm. know? Right. It's well. like, it's like, yeah, it'd be like writing a musical called um, Harlem and it's basically in the Heights. Right, right. 
but like Harlem would be a very different musical. I'm it sure it would be, but would it? I don't know. In the Heights or in in Harlem, <laughs> lights up on Harlem Street. I don't know. I can't yeah. rap. Right. It would be a very different musical. I think so. I would not be in it. No. Okay. Be Queens the musical. Yeah. Okay. So that was a good question of the day, but because that wasn't really like, because you could just draw from your own weird taste, oh, which I loved. It wasn't cheating. I'm going to give you like a like a cool like thought experiment question of the day, okay. and then you can plug whatever you want to plug before we speak again. Okay, great. I was going to say say goodbye, but that's a little too sad for right now. Okay. Okay. Um, let me think. Let me just think. Mm-hmm. Because I, I didn't prepare yeah, a great. question like a. It's like do I do I use one that I've already used or do I go for an yeah here we go okay. If you could be in any movie, oh. what movie would you be in? And you could also go so far as to tell us what character you would be, or if you have always envisioned almost like fan fiction. Shout out to a show where. Rock Rising is about to release. If if you have created a character in a famous story, yeah, okay. what movie and who would you be? I think, you know, maybe All the President's Men is a movie that I watch every couple of months just because it's so exciting. And so I would be like a little dumb reporter who like doesn't know anything about what's going on, but is like kind of overhearing some stuff that Redford's working on. Just like was there, but was not about it or not in it at all, maybe. That's one. And then I might also say, so I love Far From Heaven. That's one of my favorite movies. What is too. that? Far From Heaven, Julianne Moore. Uh, it's a movie from, I don't know, 2003 or so. And it's an homage to these sumptuous 50s movies by Douglas Sirk. And so she mm. plays a 50s housewife in suburban Connecticut. And she's married to a man. And it's a perfect marriage, except that he's a gay man, she discovers. And, there it is. And then she starts a relationship with her black gardener, played by Dennis Hayes. Uh, who's a woman? From 24. No, a man. Oh. Right. She's like, I'll get you. Uh-huh. And uh, anyway, it's it's an amazing movie that really inspired me in terms of its mix of like the ironic tone and then the sincerity of the performances. And so hmm. it would be pretty. It's autumn in Connecticut, and so you're just there, and it's it. so technicolor, and so I might, I might live there too. Anytime I think about that question, because I've used it maybe two or three times on the show, but I was an after-school arts educator. Uh-huh. And I used that question a lot because the answers were amazing. <laughs> I'd be blah, blah, blah from Pet Pals. And I'm like, that's lame, son. Like, I'm so glad I'm not a kid growing up right now. But every time I ask that question, my brain goes to, I would be um, uh, Bert in Mary Poppins. Oh. Or like one of the dogs in 101 Dalmatians. Oh, yes. Yeah. Alex, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'll plug just the Corkscrew is opening its submissions. I already said it, but December 9th. So get your projects together. And um... I'll have to catch you guys next year for a project mm-hmm, yeah. that I'll submit because I would try to get it done this year. But I, again, with BJJ, I have made commitments. Mm-hmm, and I fine. will hopefully be fighting two days before that. Oh, gotcha. Well, you got to rest up. Yeah, I, I do have to rest up right now. No, we're still here. <laughs> All right, bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>
This podcast is produced by Rock Rising. Come follow us on Instagram, and if you want to hear more podcasts, visit rockrising.org. Thanks. Thanks.